Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this program, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Dr. Katherine Carrison, an associate professor of history at Villanova University, to discuss her latest book titled Jefferson's Daughters, Three Sisters, White and Black, and a Young America. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to register for the Ford Evening Book Talk event featuring Dr. Eric Lomazov, who will be discussing his new book, Reconstructing the National Bank Controversy, Politics and Law in the Early American Republic, on Wednesday, March 6th. More information about this program can be found on the webpage for this podcast at mountvernon.org slash podcast. As always, please rate and subscribe to this series. And finally, Dr. Butterfield's conversation with Dr. Harrison. Tell me a bit about how this book came to be. What brought you to write Jefferson's Daughters? Uh, Several things, actually. So um, the first is uh, I did my graduate work here in Virginia, and book number one had uh, had me researching in Virginia. And frankly, I wanted another book that would bring me back to Virginia. but, but I think probably the, the, the most important thing was that um, when I was researching my first book, which is called Claiming the Pen, um, Women and Intellectual Life in the Early American South, I spent a lot of time digging through lots of men's papers for the tiny little nugget about women's ideas and thinking and writing that I could use in in that first book. And it was in the process of doing that that I was at UVA and saw that it wasn't just Thomas Jefferson who had produced reams of of letters, um, but also his eldest daughter, who had 11 surviving children. And so and so I just thought, gee, there's got to be a book in there somewhere. And and so that was that was sort of the germ and then of course as as they do these projects take on a life of their own. And uh, and of course I knew I would do all three daughters. So so uh, very sort of mundane beginnings, but that's how it all started. I think the best place for me to start then is for you to tell us uh, who the three daughters are and um, uh, just a little bit about them before we start diving into more detail. Okay, so so uh, Thomas Jefferson had three surviving daughters. Uh, the eldest, Martha, was born in 1772 and lived a nice long life till uh, she died in 1836 and, as I said, had 11 surviving children. Uh, her younger sister, Mariah, was born in 1778. Uh, she, uh, unfortunately, um, died after as complications of childbirth um, in 1804. So she died quite young, leaving, uh, as it turned out, one surviving child. Uh, and, of course, those were Jefferson's daughters uh, with his wife, Martha. And then, of course, uh, Martha Jefferson, Jefferson's wife, died in 1782. Uh, later, uh, Thomas Jefferson would begin um, what was effectively a long-term relationship with uh, uh, one of his enslaved people, Sally Hemings. With her, Jefferson would have four surviving children, one of whom was Harriet, um, and Harriet was born in 1801. So she was born at the time that Martha, Jefferson's eldest daughter, is having her own children. Mm. So Harriet uh, grows up with uh, Martha's children. 
complicated picture. Yeah. And all, all, all of the, the daughters are either living at or near Mount, uh, Monticello. I almost said Mount Vernon because of where <laughs> I am. But uh, all, uh, at or near uh, Mount, uh, Monticello, how, how close do his uh, adult daughters live? So, so um, by and large, Martha spends most of her life living in pretty close proximity to Monticello. She was married in 1790. By 1800, she and her husband uh, moved into a home called Edge Hill, which is, you can see it as the crow flies, barely two miles from Mm. Monticello. And that's where she spends uh, her life when she's not actually living at Monticello. Uh, Mariah is uh, something of a a different story. When she marries in 1797, uh, she she tends to live her her husband, Jack Epps, uh, comes from a family who uh, lived on the um, Appomattox River. And uh, she spent spent her time living in plantations that her husband bought that were not far, really, from Monticello. But but um, always at least a day's trip, so not in the close proximity that Jefferson always wanted her right. to. Uh, Harriet Hemings, of course, completely different story. Uh, when she turned twenty-one, she uh, left Monticello with. Jefferson's help. He paid for her stagecoach fare to leave Charlottesville and indeed paid for her fare up to Philadelphia, although the evidence uh, suggests that she actually uh, disembarked in, in Washington and stayed there. And and um, her story is particularly interesting because we know from one of her brothers who told the family history 50 years after Harriet left Monticello that um, Harriet married a white man of good standing in Washington City and raised a family of children there. Uh, she always hid her identity as, as, um, as, as having been born in, into slavery. Uh, and so and so she and so she disappeared from the historical record. Uh, so this was um, in 1822, and of course Jefferson died four years later. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no whiff of any evidence that she, that Harriet ever left Monticello as she was growing up. I mean, to go say beyond Charlottesville, beyond the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It, it, and um, the the story of, of what uh, what becomes of Harriet. We'll come back to that that okay. soon. Um, but uh, thinking as a as a historian of of the intellectual life of women, I wonder if you could talk mm-hmm. to us a, a bit about what's what you discovered in in the story of of these three women. Although I think Martha, that you said, is the most documented. Uh, that that sheds light on the education, the intellectual uh, curiosity of, of women in the early republic, or and maybe these are truly exceptional women, but I don't know. Tell us about what, they, what, what we can learn from these three stories. Well, I think with, with Martha, um, scholars in the past have, uh, well, they've focused on Jefferson, right? Uh, Jefferson's sure. always been the main event. And so, and so, uh, some, somewhat as Jefferson himself did, uh, scholars have sort of tucked Martha away in this French convent school uh, because Martha, at, at not quite 
12, accompanied her father to Paris in the summer of 18, uh, sorry, 1784. And, and so was there the entire time, the five years that, that her father was. And for most of that, she spent in a French convent school. And so I thought, well, how does a girl from Abermale County, Virginia, mm-hmm. adjust to life uh, in the waning years of the Ancien Regime, living and, and going to school with uh, the daughters of French aristocrats in a convent school that is headed uh, itself by a French aristocrat, a, a, a very powerful uh, woman who was the abbess of the school. And, and so, I, you know, I thought gee, that's, uh, that is highly unusual, of course, for... Uh, for um, American girls in the 18th century, but I had to think that it made an enormous difference in the way in which Martha thought about female education. And then, and then, as I was reading uh, more and more of the letters as as her daughters were growing up, mm. and so it, so it had a tremendous impact. Um, and and so, not least of which, um, I document in, in the book, and I found uh, really really interesting was the way in which one way or another, and I don't know how, but Martha facilitated an education in Latin for her daughters, which in colonial America um, and 19th century America, early 19th century America, was reserved strictly for boys. And, um, And so that gave her daughters, I think, um... That and the, the, the way in which Martha taught her girls to do the same thing she was doing, which is to say to, to identify with the life of the mind, mm-hmm. following the exemplar they had before them, right? The, uh, Thomas Jefferson himself. Yeah. And, so, and so, um, so this is not... This is not um, common for other American girls in the revolutionary era. This sort of both level of of intellectual life, and of course the proximity to one of the great Enlightenment minds in in America, and one of the great Enlightenment libraries. In America. Yes. Do, do we know anything yes. about her reading habits? About Martha's reading habits. Oh yes. So so I think. Um, there, are, there are several ways that we can kind of get at that. One is um, uh, Monticello has over the years gathered together uh, or, or tried to sort of reconstitute some of the, the, the library, the actual books owned by um, Jeff- Jefferson himself and, and Martha and, and, and her children. So, so in part, and of course I had the, the thrill and privilege of, of being able to look through through those, mm-hmm. um, but then there is also an, 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 another way um, again to sort of tie my suspicion that those five years in Paris had to have uh, shaped Martha's thinking about female education was uh, a letter. Um, Written in 1818, a friend of, or an acquaintance of Jefferson had, had written to Jefferson to say, so what would you recommend for a, for a good education for, for young women? And Jefferson's answer was essentially to say, I haven't really thought about it much, but 
I know someone who has. And so, and so the list that he enclosed in his reply to, the, to this uh, query was clearly drawn up by Martha, and, uh, and I think probably with help from, from um, her daughter, Ellen. Wow. And, and, and that, you know, because there, there, there is um, classical history, French history, uh, French literature and plays, a, a lot of sort of the kind of standard um, English literature types that, that were sort of the staple from the colonial period through mm. the revolutionary period as, as well. So sure. is that. But I, I just see Martha's handprint all over yeah. that that list. Um, Do we learn anything about Mariah's um, intellectual life? Ah, uh, Mariah. Um, so, whereas it's clear that um, Martha absolutely was was sort of a sponge for all of this, loved um, loved her reading. Um, uh, Mariah was rather resistant to it, or at least. In a way, it's sort of hard to tell um, because, uh, again, Mariah um, had a very short life. Her only surviving child was three when she died, right? So unlike the 11 children of Martha's who were as devoted to her memory and, and her legacy as they were to Jefferson's, uh, Mariah didn't have people sort of telling her, her story for her. And so I'm not, I, I always tend to be a little bit suspicious mm. of the comparison that, say, Martha's daughter Ellen would say about Mariah was beautiful. My mother was brilliant. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, and, and the reason that I'm sort of a little bit suspicious of this is, bec is because I thought it was really interesting when I was reading the um, letters of Abigail Adams that Abigail Adams was in London and when Mariah uh, comes over to join Jefferson and, and um, her sister in 1787, so three years after Jefferson left, her, her ship uh, docks first uh, in, in, in England, and uh, Abigail and John Adams are already there. He's serving as, as um, America's first ambassador to the court of King George III. Sure. And Abigail's talking about this charming nine-year-old girl who is... Um, Delighted with her reading, who uh, asks very sharp questions, right? So, so it's a very different picture that we get later from Martha's daughters. Mm. So, um, but and the other thing that uh, that I was sort of thinking about as I was reading the book, uh, sorry, as I was preparing uh, the book, was to to think about. Um, the time that Mariah spent in Philadelphia with her father, when her father is Secretary of State, Philadelphia is the national capital. Uh, Martha is home and married in, in Virginia. And so this is really kind of the first time that Mariah has her father all to herself. Sure. And, and it sort of occurred to me as I was sort of trying to think about how can I with frankly, very few sources, because Mariah was not a letter writer and everyone complained about that. Um, very few sources trying to figure out what what could I what could I learn about Mariah in this period of her 
her own schooling as a young teenager, which of course are very formative years for a young girl. And then when it sort of dawned on me that, well, gosh, Philadelphia is is for Mariah what Paris was for Martha. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I mean... I teach just down the road from Philadelphia, but that thought then led me to do the same kind of traipsing about Philadelphia that I had done in Paris as I had tried to map out the physical world of Martha Jefferson yeah. uh, and um, and to ask the same kinds of questions uh, what what uh, what girls is she uh, is she um, associating with what what leading women would have been there in in, in what context might she have have uh, associated and 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 met them so yeah. so um, so, so again, Mariah didn't leave children to talk about these years. Right. And so I was doing what historians of the marginalized, I, I know we don't tend to think of Thomas Jefferson's elite daughters as people on the margins. But you have to read well into the record to learn. Yes. Yeah. And the way you do that is to, is to, ask a lot of questions about the context mm. of the times. Well, then let me take you to the most challenging story to recreate. Um, is there anything we can learn about Harriet's intellectual development, how she thought about the world? Is there anything that we can cling to to understand who she was? For, for Harriet, uh, again, I, I, I have to rely heavily on two things. First is the, the context of enslaved life at Monticello and the various tiers of that. And then, of course, in, in doing that, I stand, my my work stands on the shoulders of giants like uh, Annette Gordon-Reed mm -hmm. and uh, Lucius Stanton, mm -hmm. um, who have done so much work on, on the enslaved community at Monticello and uh, the Hemings family, Sally Hemings's family particularly. So, so that that is a, a large part of this this work. The other um, is the account left by Madison Hemings, who was Harriet's younger brother, mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, four years younger than than she was, and who, who as I said, told the family story in. 1873. So, in Ohio? Yes. He was, by this point, uh, his mother had died, and Madison and Eston, uh, Harriet's two younger brothers, had left Charlottesville, where they had been living, um, until 1837, and they move out to Chillicothe, Ohio, or that area, where in the 1830s there was already a sizable free black community, many of them from Virginia. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so of course, by 1873, the Civil War is over. We're in the midst of Reconstruction. And, um, and the, there is a, um, an, an effort uh, by an Ohio newspaper to collect stories of, of people out there who had begun their lives in slavery and were now very uh, prosperous people in, in Ohio. And so that's the context for this story. And, and so um, Madison spends a paragraph on his sister, 
Um, and and I'm sure, it's a paragraph you've read very closely. Yes, and <laughs> can almost uh, say ver- verbatim. I'm sure. But 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 I think what I what I did was to concentrate very carefully on on the way he phrased uh, uh, talking about his sister's departure that she chose. Uh, to uh, go to Washington as a white woman mm. and that by her dress and conduct as such that uh, those were his words, that she was successful in doing that. And so sort of back to your question about about sort of her thinking. So that suggests to me that this was a decision that she made Mm-hmm. That wasn't necessarily a family decision. It was a decision that she made for herself, for her life, and so and so that I think a great deal of her preparation growing up, particularly as as a teenager, would would have been to learn what it means to perform uh, a a life and freedom, and to perform whiteness. And I think there are ways in which in her proximity to the house, the, the, the great house, um, that that in uh, her mother uh, that that she could that she uh, could learn uh, elegant ways, for example, of of presenting a meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I dare say that she spent uh, a lot of time um, poking around the kitchen at, at Monticello. Her mother was a noted seamstress. I dare say she learned as as um, every well-bred white girl would have learned in preparation for marriage, mm-hmm. uh, how to sew, how to dress herself, how mm-hmm. so that she and so she could dress her children, so that she could uh, make the curtains, bed hangings, the pillows, the cushions, the kinds of things that that spell um, uh, household domesticity and and middling class. So, mm-hmm. so um, I have no idea even about the basics if she had reading literature or writing or she could we just don't know hmm. um, there were Hemingses who could write yeah. um, have no idea about Harry Madison could read and write so could his uh, brother Eston mm-hmm. okay so this, you did not write this book to better understand Thomas Jefferson but let me go ahead and ask that question mm. what, what did you learn about Thomas Jefferson that maybe you think hadn't been uh, thought about before in our understanding of, of the man I, I think um, what's particularly useful about looking at Jefferson th- through this lens mm-hmm. is the way in which we see him unedited that that as as a, as a father of these three uh, women so so he was always as 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 the founders were very conscious of his reputation and what he was leaving for posterity. And so there were so many different ways in which he edited his legacy for us. But not so much when it comes to his daughters. And so that very frank letter in which uh, he says to Nathaniel Burrell, well, actually, I haven't really given female education a whole heck of a lot of thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way in which he assigns his daughter Harriet to his weaving shop, right? And and that spinning and weaving uh, works in the... um, 
uh, in the colonial period and and through Jefferson's day, uh, well and truly into the 19th century, that in in the South that's cons- that's considered the labor of the enslaved, mm. right? And so, and so there are just sort of ways in which we see Jefferson as an entirely, well, in this sense, very conventional. Mm. Right, yeah. and um, and so so yes, he's given us these soaring words in the Declaration of Independence, and he absolutely rejected notions of natural hierarchy when it came to the uh, monarchy and to the nobility. Mm-hmm. But when it but when it um, came to thinking about men and women in the world, and 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 uh, white people and people of, of African descent, he had very, very conventional ideas. And we see that very clearly, I think, uh, through this lens. Wow. Okay, so uh, 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 forgive me for asking another question about men in this story, but the, the, the husbands of the daughters are, are interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, first of all, I, I don't know what you can tell us about Harriet's life in terms of uh, what, uh, a man in her life. Is there anything we can know? The, the only thing that we know are those sparse details mm-hmm. that Madison gave us, that, that he, she married a white man, in good standing, uh, in Washington City, um, so uh, you know. So I think that probably means sort of, of of reputation, uh, so someone who has uh, of at least middling status. But that that's all we know. Um, yeah. I I spend a chapter chronicling my efforts to find out uh, who he actually was. And and Madison was actually quite specific about saying he knew the man's name but would not tell as a way to, is, to protect his sister's project of being able to uh, confer the privileges of whiteness to her children. The other husbands, mm. I think, are, are useful for understanding the constraints of married life in in the early republic. The ways in which uh, women were very much at the at the mercy of of their husbands in terms of managing the estate, how they treated their families. And I know that there's some stories uh, about um, Thomas Jefferson's sons-in-laws, uh, maybe not being the best providers, being the best and most capable of loving husbands. Uh, I'm, I, I don't know as much as you do, so tell us a little right. bit about these sons-in-law. Um, okay, well, uh, the first uh, was Tom Randolph, and uh, uh, Martha married Tom Randolph, uh, gosh, within a couple of months of her return from France, actually. And yeah, you tell that story. It's a very abrupt moment. It is. Yeah. It's it's quite uh, quite abrupt. Uh, and um, I think I think initially it was a happy marriage. Uh, over the course of several decades, uh, though, they did become estranged. Um, yeah. And and in fact, after Jefferson's death, uh, Martha went up to. Uh, spend time with her daughter Ellen in Boston for the better part of of two years. Tom Randolph died in 1828, although just before that he he sort of 
reached uh, a peace, I would say, with, with Martha and, and also with his eldest son, uh, with whom he'd also been quite estranged. But I think um, Tom Randolph actually um, uh, had the sort of unfortunate uh, position of, of not being Thomas Jefferson yeah. <laughs> and, 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 um, and living his life uh, under that enormous shadow. And so, um, and so I think we've, we tend to miss uh, the ways in which he was actually a, a very creative farmer. Um, but like so many um, uh, Virginia farmers, Tom Randolph was not the only one, uh, who found, uh, found it increasingly difficult in the early 19th century to make a go of it mm-hmm. in, in, um, in Virginia soil that had really been kind of drained of its nutrients. And, of course, the Panic of 1819 that really uh, slammed real estate values and that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. so um so I think I think there were um, I I I think Tom Randolph has been um, sort of underrated and and kind of and kind of neglected. What can you tell Jack, us about Miranda? Jack Epps is he's he's an he's an interesting story. So uh, of the two sons-in-law, uh, there appears to be or at least Tom thought there was some favoritism and that Jefferson preferred. Jack, mm-hmm. I think uh, in in terms of personalities that comes through in in the letters, uh, Jack is uh, I mean he's got a bit of a sense of humor. He's a bit more effervescent, uh, uh, and and I think I think Tom Randolph actually suffered from depression and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So so there may have been sort of something to uh, to his suspicion that Jefferson preferred Jack. I think what's what's interesting that I that I saw again just spending a lot of time reading his letters uh, and uh, both to Jefferson and to his wife Mariah, there were several things that 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 I that I noticed. One one was, for example, there was. Um, a letter in which uh, Jefferson uh, is encouraging, not for the first time, he wants Jack and Mariah to come and, and start building on Pantops, which is a, uh, again, sort of a hill that you can see from Monticello. He wanted to be able to see them. And and um, and he was pressuring Jack to, to sort of make, make some decisions about that. But at the time, Mariah was away visiting uh, friends and and so and he said um, thank you very much uh, this is a, a lovely offer but I can't consider it until I've spoken with my wife mm. which didn't strike me as typical for an no. early 19th century it husband. sounds natural in the 21st century but yes not. but yeah. but not but but not then um, and um, and and the the the, the way in which um, it's also sort of clear from from the letters the way in which once Mariah is married, her husband is the focus of family life, not her father. Mm. And um, and 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 so I think that's 
probably why she has to spend so much time reassuring Jefferson that, yes, I, you know, I, I do love you. Just because I'm not living within earshot of you doesn't mean that I don't. Yeah. But, um, but in their brief marriage, so seven, not even quite seven years, mm-hmm. um, uh, Mariah's body gives out after four pregnancies, wow. and so, uh, but it's 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 clear that um, in the companionate mode of marriage, mm-hmm. that um, that is is sort of a a goal for for um, more elite families in, in any event uh, from sort of the mid 18th century on that that this is this is really a, a loving marriage That's in great. which the um, the wishes of the other are a priority wow yeah so I want to bring things to a close though by uh, by sort of really delving into to really an unanswered question, uh, and that is, I know that you uh, you tell very very eloquently in the book your your efforts to discover what happened to Harriet, uh, and I wonder if you could just talk. Uh, in the end, I know that there are some unanswered questions, but if you could just talk us talk to us about that journey, about that effort to to discover what you what you could. Right. So and what you couldn't. Yes. So um, to be to be honest, when I first started this project. I knew, of course, I was going to include Harriet Hemings, Mm -hmm. but I also assumed that I would have to use her more as a sort of a, a, a symbol or a vehicle to talk about race and the revolution. Um, I didn't think it was going to be possible to, to find her. And, and so, um, but what I, what I, what I discovered uh, was that the District of Columbia, beginning in 1811, required that everyone married in the district uh, uh, register with with the clerks. So, so beginning in 1811, and Harriet would have been there by 1822. All marriages in the district are, are recorded, mm-hmm. and so I went. Uh, and And it wasn't until I I discovered that, that I thought, well, maybe it might be possible to find her. And so, and so, of course, the first thing I do is sort of look under H's, and of course, there's no Hemmings. uh, She's, she's taken a different name, which doesn't surprise me. Um, And, and so, um, and so I, what I ended up doing was going through that register, and for the 1820s, I wrote down the name of every Harriet who got married in Washington City, and of course, the name of her husband. And so I wound up with 59 Harriets and 59 husbands. Mm -hmm. And so then I went through a a process of, of essentially genealogical research in which I've had zero practice. I'm originally from Australia, so I don't have any genealogy to do over here. So this was, so I was really a rank amateur as I was starting this. And, and so, and, and the other thing I should say, um, was that I, I thought the way in which she might reveal herself to me would be if she had sons and if her sons, one of her sons, might have borne the names of her very distinctive names of her brothers, of Beverly, Madison, and Eston. Yeah. 
and so and so that was that was sort of the the goal and it was really a lot of um, a lot of trial and error um, a lot of uh, Going back constantly to that one paragraph that Madison wrote, and 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 sort of the ways in which sort of I, I thought, well, she probably lived until at least 1863, because he said in 1873 he hadn't heard from her in about 10 years. Mm-hmm. So if a woman died, a Harriet died in the 1830s or 40s, I could scratch her off my list. If she uh, if she was a woman of color, I could scratch her. Off. If I could find um, a record of a baptism for example, obviously she wasn't my Harriet as I came to think of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, if she married a free man of color, she wasn't my Harriet. So so in all those different ways, kind of, and I had one uh, that I spent a lot of time talking about in the book who really had me going for a time Um but um, in, in in the end, so much so actually, I traced one of her descendants who very kindly um, uh, did a, an ancestry DNA wow. test for me. This is how not sure I was, but hopeful I, w- I was. And as as it turned out, there was there was no connection. Mm. So. The search will go on. What an exciting search, though. I'm sure it, there were moments where you must have been exasperated and moments where you were thrilled. Oh, there were there were so many ups and downs. You know, so when I when I found, for example, a, a brother and a sister, and I could document that they were brother and sister, and I thought, because the, the other thing to, to say is that Harriet's older brother, Beverly, did the same thing she did, hmm. which is to say went to Washington as a white person, married a white person no one ever guessed uh, who he was and and of course it's always my hope since Harriet had to sever her connections with her mother and her two younger brothers that at least the two of them uh, Beverly and Harriet could have maintained a connection and so when I saw this I thought maybe that's her but then it turned out that that Harriet actually married uh, a free man of color so that wasn't her so Um, there, uh, yeah, some some real frustration, and I have to say, even you know that final moment when I sent off the 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 final revision of the manuscript to the press. That's it. That I that I uh, I felt a real pang of regret. On the other hand, the fact that Harriet Hemings disappeared so successfully. Hmm. makes the point that I wanted her story to make, which is the artificiality of these divides yeah. of race um, and, um, and, and, and that they, they are entirely artificial and that even for people who might want to know where that line stands between black and white, they can't always know. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.